electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Hi, I'm Brian Sullivan, and we begin tonight with breaking news. In minutes, maybe moments, President Biden will address the nation from the Oval Office. It is actually his first ever Oval Office address to America. In the statement, the president expected to take a political victory lap over the debt limit deal. The agreement will cut spending and eliminate the debt limit for two years until after next year's election. The president is not planning to sign that bill tonight. That is expected to happen as soon as tomorrow. But the signing will come, and that made investors positively giddy today, breathing a big sigh of relief and doing some big-time buying. Remember on last night's program, we discussed the risk of a potential summer bummer for the economy, but maybe hot summer is more appropriate, at least for now. Stocks roaring higher today, fueled by a strong May jobs number and, of course, that debt limit deal. The Dow scoring its best day since early January. The S&P 500 touching highs not seen since last August. And the Nasdaq says, hold my beer. Heading its highest level in more than a year. It is now in a six-week win streak. In fact, 14 Nasdaq 100 stocks are now up more than 20% in just the last two months, led by NVIDIA. And as stocks rise, fear falls. The VIX, volatility index, also known as a gauge of investor nervousness or fear, Now at its lowest level since February of 2020, here is the president. My fellow Americans, when I ran for president, I was told the days of bipartisanship were over and that Democrats and Republicans can no longer work together. But I refuse to believe that because America can never give in to that way of thinking. Look, the only way American democracy can function is through compromise and consensus. And that's what I work to do as your president. You know, to forge bipartisan agreement where it's possible and where it's needed. I've signed more than 350 bipartisan laws thus far in two and a half years, including the historic law that rebuilding America so that we can rank number one in the world in infrastructure instead of where we're ranked now number 13 in the world. Another historic law, rebuilding our manufacturing base so that we'll lead the world once again in making semiconductor chips so much more and so, so many more and so many more sophisticated ones. And now a bipartisan budget agreement. This is vital because it's because it's essential to the progress we've made over the last few years is keeping full faith and credit of the United States of America and passing a budget that continues to grow our economy and reflects our values as a nation. That's why I'm speaking to you tonight, to report on the crisis averted and what we're doing to protect America's future. Passing this budget agreement was critical. The stakes could not have been higher. If we had failed to reach an agreement on the budget, there were extreme voices threatening to take America for the first time in our 247-year history into default on our national debt. Nothing, nothing would have been more irresponsible. Nothing would have been more catastrophic. Our economy would have been thrown into recession. Retirement accounts for millions of Americans would have been decimated. Eight million Americans would have lost their jobs. Default would have been, have destroyed our nation's credit rating, which would have made everything from mortgages to car loans to funding for the government much more expensive. And it would have taken years to climb out of that hole. And America's standing as the most trusted, reliable financial partner in the world would have been shattered. So it was critical to reach an agreement. And it's very good news for the American people. No one got everything they wanted, but the American people got what they needed. We averted an economic crisis, an economic collapse. We're cutting spending and bringing the deficits down at the same time. We're protecting important priorities from Social Security to Medicare to Medicaid to veterans to our transformational investments in infrastructure and clean energy. I want to commend Senator Speaker McCarthy You know, uh, he and I, uh, we uh, and our teams, we were able to get along, get things done. We were straightforward with one another, 
completely honest with one another and respectful with one another. Both sides operated in good faith. Both sides kept their word. And I also want to commend other congressional leaders, House Minority Leader Jeffries, Senate Majority Leader Schumer, Senate Minority Leader McConnell. They acted responsibly and put the good of the country ahead of politics. The final vote in both chambers was overwhelming, far more bipartisan than anyone thought was possible. So I want to thank the members of Congress who voted to pass this agreement which I'm going to sign tomorrow and become the law. So here's what the deal does. First, it cuts spending. And over the next 10 years, the deficit will be cut by more than $1 trillion. And that will be on top of the record $1.7 trillion. $1.7 trillion. I already cut the deficit in my first two years in office. And it's clear we're all on a much more fiscally responsible course than the one I inherited when I took office four years ago. When I came to office, the deficit had increased every year the previous four years. And nearly $8 trillion was added to the national debt in the last administration. And now we're turning things around. And that's good for America. You know, my dad used to have an expression. He said, Joey, don't tell me what you value. Show me your budget. I'll tell you what you value. That's at the heart of this debate. What do we value? Protecting seniors. You may remember, during my State of the Union address, there, were a spirit, there was a spirit exchange between me and a few Republicans spontaneously occurring on the floor of the House of Representatives. I was pointing out that for years, some of them were putting forward proposals to cut Social Security and Medicare. And some of them that night took exception, and they said very loudly that that wasn't true. So I asked them on the floor that night, I said, ask them a simple question. Will you agree not to cut Social Security, not to cut Medicare? Would they agree to protect these essential programs? They're a lifeline for millions of Americans. Programs that these Americans have been paying into every single paycheck they've earned since they started working. And that provides so much peace of mind. With the bright lights and cameras on, those few Republicans who were protesting, they agreed. They said they wouldn't cut it. That's how we protected Social Security and Medicare from the beginning and from it being cut, period. Healthcare was another priority for me, a top priority. I made it clear from the outset, I would not agree to any cuts in Medicaid, another essential lifeline for millions of Americans, including children in poverty, the elderly in nursing homes, and Americans living with disabilities. The original House Republican proposal would have cut healthcare for up to 21 million Americans on Medicaid. And I said no. And Medicare was protected. And so were millions of people most in need. Look, I've long believed that the only one truly sacred obligation that the government has is to prepare those we send into harm's way and care for them and their families when they come home and when they don't come home. That's why my last budget provided VA hospitals with additional funding for more doctors, nurses, and equipment to accommodate the needs of veterans and more appointments. The House Republican plan would have met 30 fewer million VA healthcare visits for our veterans. We didn't let that happen. In addition, this bill fully funds the Bipartisan PACT Act, the most significant law in decades for veterans exposed to toxic burn pits and for their families. It expands access to those veterans and their families to health care and to disability benefits. Look, we're investing in America and our people and in our future. We've created over 13 million new jobs, nearly 800,000 manufacturing jobs. Where is it written that America can't lead the world again in manufacturing? Unemployment is at 3.7 percent. More Americans are working today than ever in the history of this country. And inflation has dropped 10 straight months in a row. In this debate, I refuse to put what was responsible for all this economic progress on the chopping block. This bipartisan agreement protects the law that will help us build the best infrastructure in the world. It fully protects the Chips and Science Act, which is going to bring key parts of our supply chain to America. So we don't have to rely on others, like semiconductors, those tiny computer chips smaller than the tip of your finger 
that affect nearly everything we rely on, from cell phones to having building automobiles to the most sophisticated weapon systems and so much more. We protected another law that I passed and signed last year that finally beat Big Pharma, which I've been trying to do for over 30 years. It finally gives Medicare the power to negotiate lower drug prices, just like the VA has been able to do for veterans. This law has already dramatically cut the cost of insulin for seniors, from as much as $400 a month to just $35 a month for insulin. Negotiating lower drug prices not only saves seniors a lot of money, it saves the country a lot of money. $160 billion that's not having to be paid out because we're Drug prices are more rational. We pay the highest drug prices of any industrial nation in the world. And it's just the beginning. You know, we also protected the most significant breakthrough ever, ever, in dealing with the existential threat of climate change. Today, new wind and solar power is cheaper than fossil fuel. Since I've been in office, clean energy and advanced manufacturing have brought in four $170 billion in private investments. It's going to create thousands of jobs, good-paying jobs, all across this country, and help the environment at the same time. Remember, at the beginning of this debate, some of my Republican colleagues were determined to gut the clean energy investments. I said, no, we kept them all. And there's, one, and there's so much more to do. We're going to do even more to reduce the deficit we need to control spending if we're going to do that. But we also have to raise revenue and go after tax cheats and make sure everybody's paying their fair share. No one, I promise, no one making less than $400,000 a year will pay a penny more in federal taxes. But like most of you at home, I know the federal tax system isn't fair. That's why I kept my commitment, again, that no one earning less than $400,000 a year will pay a penny more in federal taxes. That's why last year I secured more funding to go more IRS funding to go after wealthy tax cheats. The nonpartisan Congressional Budget Office, and it is nonpartisan, says that this bill will bring in $150 billion, and other outside experts expect that it would save as much as $400 billion because it's forcing people to pay their fair share. Republicans may not like it, but I'm going to make sure the wealthy pay their fair share. I'm also proposed closing over a dozen special interest tax loopholes for big oil, crypto traders, hedge fund billionaires, saving taxpayers billions of dollars. Republicans defended every single one of these special interest loopholes, every single one. But I'm going to be coming back. And with your help, I'm going to win. Right now, catch this. Right now, the average billionaire in America pays just 8% in federal taxes, 8%. Teachers and firefighters pay more than that. That's why I propose the minimum tax for billionaires. Republicans are against it, but I'm going to keep fighting for it. No billionaire should pay less in federal taxes than a teacher or a firefighter. Look, let me close with this. I know bipartisanship is hard and unity is hard, but we can never stop trying. Because in moments like this one, the ones we just faced, where the American economy and the world economy is at risk of collapsing, there's no other way. No matter how tough our politics gets, we need to see each other, not as adversaries, but as fellow Americans. Treat each other with dignity and respect. To join forces as Americans to stop shouting, lower the temperature, and work together to pursue progress, secure prosperity, and keep the promise of America for everybody. As I've said in my inaugural address, without unity, there is no peace, only bitterness and fury. And we can never become that country. I can honestly say, I can honestly say to you tonight that I've never been more optimistic about America's future. We just need to remember who we are. We are the United States of America. And there's nothing, nothing we can't do when we do it together. So thank you all for listening, taking the time tonight to listen to me. May God bless you all, and may God protect our troops. Thank you.
All right, President Biden just wrapping up his address from the Oval Office, his first ever really two big standouts from Biden, saying passing the budget deal was, quote, vital for the economy and also commends House Speaker Kevin McCarthy on the deal, saying that he will sign it tomorrow. CBC's Kayla Tausche live from the White House with many of the other key takeaways from that president's speech. Kayla. Well, Brian, there's a saying that you don't get credit for crises you avert, and President Biden is trying to change that this evening with this address, seeking credit for the bipartisan deal that averted a default and the economic catastrophe that would have followed. Uh, President Biden also teeing up Democrats' messaging and priorities for a forthcoming four-month budget fight that House Speaker Kevin McCarthy has pledged could bring some discomfort as Republicans seek to make good on some of those spending levels that were agreed to as part of this relatively brief deal. That's going to happen over the next several months. President Biden arguing economic consequences if some of his landmark and signature uh, legislation is overturned and arguing that uh, there is economic growth that is provided by things like funding the IRS and also making the case for attacks on billionaires, attacks on crypto trading, things that were not in this deal, but are things that he's advocated for many times before. President Biden is now officially a candidate for re-election, and he approached tonight's speech as something of a stump speech, laying out his agenda, laying out those priorities, and certainly taking a much different approach than President Obama did when he made a similar primetime address in July of 2011. That was a week before uh, eventually reaching a deal with Republicans in Congress. The market would slide 17 percent before that deal was reached. But tonight, President Biden, with a deal in hand that he plans to sign tomorrow, is able, able to declare victory. Brian. All right, Kayla Tausche at the White House. For more now on the debt ceiling deal and the president's comments, by the way, signing what's known as the Fiscal Responsibility Act, which you're going to hear as the debt ceiling deal and what it can mean for your money and investments. Bring in former Democratic Congresswoman of Maryland, Donna Edwards, former CBO Director Keith Hall and Fundstrat Managing Partner Tom Lee. Thank you all uh, for joining us here on Last Call. Um, uh, Keith, I'm going to go straight to you, sort of your take, kind of wide-ranging, fairly quick, your take on what you heard from the president tonight. Well, I think regardless of the circumstances, the legislation is actually is actually good legislation. It's the first time that we've had legislation passed that's reduced the rate of borrowing by the federal government in over a dozen years. Um, it's encouraging. I just hope that this, this concern with borrowing doesn't end here. Um, and this really will save some money over the next decade. Yeah. Congresswoman Edwards, does it save money or does it simply reduce the level at which deficits would increase? I think that's sort of the, can be the confusing part to the audience sometimes. Well, I think what the president laid out is one that his administration has already uh, cut the deficit by $1.7 trillion, and this will then uh, add to it. I mean, obviously, um, it is going to slow uh, the rate of, of spending over the next decade. And I think the key here was that the president laid out that he both was able to protect his priorities and achieve the kind of spending cuts that were necessary in order to uh, bring Republicans along the legislation. Yeah. Tom Lee, the markets loved it today. You remain optimistic. Uh, yeah. I mean, I'd say that uh, the worst case would have been you know, a debt ceiling, no deal, and then uh, running into a clock and possibility of default. So anything else is actually welcome by market. So, yes, market liked it. Keith, can we address certain things to specific to the CNBC audience? The president likes to repeat this phrase that billionaires are paying less in taxes than teachers and firefighters. I think he's conflating a couple of different things that billionaires income tax rate may be 8% because billionaires don't have income for the most part. They have they have wealth. They try to avoid paying themselves for income for that specific reason. But the median effective middle class tax rate has never been lower. It stands at about 3%. That is not including Social Security and Medicare. Is that is that accurate what he's saying about billionaires, teachers and firefighters? Um, not really. Yeah. And, and exactly. as you it's say, not, it's not, it, he keeps saying it, but that doesn't mean right. that it's that it's true. Well, well, that's right. That's right. In fact, if you look at the actual taxes collected, you know, the top one percent of income earners pay a huge percentage of taxes in this country. Um, the billionaire thing is sort of con conflicting is mixing wealth with with income, as you mentioned. 
Yeah. And, and Congresswoman Edwards was, you know, here's the reality is that you've got middle class effective, meaning after deduction tax rates have never been lower. Don't shoot the messenger, everybody. I don't like taxes either. But the reality is middle class taxes, excluding Social Security, Medicare, have never been lower. I know it sounds weird. State and local have gone up. Is there any discussion behind closed doors and sort of whispered in the halls of Congress that, hey, at some point we're going to have to raise middle class taxes? Well, I I know on the Democratic side, I haven't heard that kind of whispering. But what I will say is I think this is a reason this evening you heard the president really focusing on the IRS reforms and the need to uh, keep that keeps at least some of that money that uh, had been included in the Inflation Reduction Act to make sure that the IRS is actually collecting all the revenues that it's owed. And I think that that's a huge problem the president sees right now. And, you know, the fact is, that um, there have been discussions about how you tax wealth as opposed to just taxing income. And I think it's time for us to have those discussions because otherwise people who trade on paper never really get to have that um, brought into the tax system. And so I think that's where um, the president would disagree with you um, as he argues that billionaires pay less than your secretary uh, and your average worker. But they but they don't. We, we, we know they don't, Congresswoman, because they, they, they don't have income. But but he's conf- he's not adding in Social Security and Medicare to that average effective tax rate. By the way, billionaires, if they're paying eight percent, should probably pay a lot more. I completely agree. But if you don't make income, it's hard. Tom Lee, would a wealth tax work? And if we got a wealth tax because the super rich don't pay themselves income, right? Who gets income? People like athletes and entertainers and TV news anchors, right, that maybe make more money on the W-2 side. Would a wealth tax damage the economy or help the economy by increasing federal revenues? Uh, I think a wealth tax just doesn't even seem to be congruent with capitalism. Uh, I'd probably be supportive of some sort of consumption tax. But, you know, to tax a base of wealth uh, just because it exists is... uh, I mean, I just don't think that's productive. I think you're going to drive a lot of uh, folks to potentially move assets out of the country. So, you know, if uh, I don't disagree with the statements about higher overall taxation of wealthy Americans, if it's unjust, but I would prefer to see it come through consumption or some some other form of taxation. Yeah. Cu- quickly, one last one to uh, Congresswoman Edwards. Do, would, did you ever discuss a federal sales tax, like probably known as a VAT. Was that ever up in, in your time in office? No. And the reason part of the reason is that that would most impact your lower income uh, workers and your middle class. And so we don't need to have a tax system that further burdens the middle class. We need a tax system that goes at the wealth that's been created that gets passed from one, uh, uh, you know, sort of one taxpayer, one generation to the next. And I think it's time for us to have the discussion. And there are all kinds of configurations about the way that you can achieve a wealth tax in order to um, to bring mm-hmm. in more revenues. OK, yeah, Europe has tried it, hasn't had a lot of success, but you never know. Congresswoman Donna Edwards, Keith Hall, Tom Lee, thank you all very much. All right. Coming up next, we're going to switch gears. Is the relief you've been getting at the gas pump lower prices? That's good. Is that about to end, though? OPEC but they deliver an unpleasant surprise at their meeting this weekend in Vienna. Dan Jurgen is here. Plus, telecom giants getting slammed with major interferences. Amazon about to dial into the wireless wars. Stay with us. Friday, Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes is coming to IMAX and theaters everywhere. This summer, one movie event will reign. It is our time. They stole my village. I know where they're taking your clan. Bend for your king. Never. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Only in theaters Friday. Tickets on sale now. Rated PG-13. Some material may be inappropriate for children under 13. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. 
That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. All right, time now for tomorrow's news tonight. The stories you're going to be talking about tomorrow morning, CNBC style, of course. First up, call it a domino effect. Allstate announcing today it will stop selling property and casualty insurance policies to new customers in California. It cites growing natural disaster risk along with higher costs for repairing homes and reinsurance premiums. That move follows State Farm, a story we covered in the show earlier this week. Allstate is the California's fourth biggest insurer. State Farm is the largest. Allstate collected over $4.3 billion in California premiums in 2021, with over $2.6 billion in losses. So now up, by the way, what we've just told you is that State Farm and Allstate, two of the four biggest insurers in California, will no longer write new home insurance policies in part because of the reinsurance market, higher costs, and climate risk. Wow. All right, next up, a big move for Churchill Downs. That, of course, the home of the Kentucky Derby. Listen to this. Churchill Downs suspending races and removing the remainder of its spring meet to a sister property more than 100 miles away. This coming after 12 horses have died in just the past month, leading Churchill Downs to begin what they're calling a top-to-bottom review. Now, racing will continue at Churchill Downs until Sunday before moving to that new location. 12 horses have died in a month. And finally... It's a big weekend ahead for oil as the OPEC Plus meeting set to kick off Sunday in Vienna. Really, tomorrow, the ministerial meeting is Sunday. Reuters reporting the organization is considering an additional cut in oil production. Now, since October, OPEC Plus nations have cut oil output or quotas by 2 million barrels due to softening demand. Oil prices seeing a pop at the end of a volatile week after heightened optimism around that debt ceiling deal, as well as the stronger job numbers today, going back above 70 bucks a barrel. But what are the big expectations for Sunday's meeting? Joining us now with more on what we can expect from OPEC and energy markets in general going forward is S&B Global Vice Chair and author of The New Map, Energy, Security, and the Class of Nations, Dan Jurgen. Dan, great to have you back on. Thank you. Uh, I'm not there. I'm not at the in-person meeting. Uh, I did not think that they would be cutting Reuters coming out and saying they might. What do you think? Well, I think it's actually uh, they'll probably decide that in the next uh, day or so. I think the Saudi uh, petroleum minister, energy minister, who's a key person, is uh, he likes surprises. And they've certainly been disappointed by the rebound in China and the uncertainty in the U.S. Although, Brian, as you just pointed out, uh, the debt ceiling lifts a lot of the uncertainty in the U.S. economy. by the way, there is an energy side to that debt ceiling, too, which is it tries to address this uh, permitting pandemic we have in the United States where you can't build any energy projects. Yeah. Uh, you know, listen, OPEC made that surprise announcement April 2nd that cut that kind of came out of nowhere. But they were they were noting that these were voluntary cuts. We also know a lot of the OPEC nations may not be able to meet their quotas on those cuts. And there's a lot of kind of fuzzy data because it's hard to know, Dan about what actually is happening out of Russia. With all the resources and your big brain and all your people around you and all the data you have access to, what is the actual state of Russian oil flows right now? The uh, actual state is that they, uh, they have cut production, but not as much as they've said they have. They've maintained their exports, even increased them because they've taken oil out of storage. The discount on Russian uh, oil exports is uh, about $22 right now. And Russia, which people haven't really been talking about, is stuck with a lot of rupees, Indian currency, because they're getting paid in part, and they can't uh, move, uh, they can't convert that rupee into anything. But I think Russia's, what Russia's gonna do is gonna be really determined by the war that it's in, uh, rather than uh, looking at what the other uh, mm-hmm. OPEC plus countries are doing. The president reiterating that new wind and solar projects, Dan, are less expensive than fossil fuel projects. I know there was an IEA study, I think it was, in 2020 that 62 percent of projects 
were indeed. But everything I've said says the price trends have come up. Are wind and solar all in? If you take all in on the costs, construction, disposal, what have you, versus fossil, are they actually cheaper? Uh if you look at the whole everything in, uh, I think the answer would be no. Of course, there are tremendous incentives there now, and in particular, the Inflation Reduction Act uh, means you'll have tax credits that will last till 2042. But actually, costs are, are going up. Uh, materials are going up. Supply chains are going up. In fact, uh, one of the leading uh, solar and wind companies in the United States uh, said at our CIRWI conference that the supply chains are their, their biggest concerns. Uh, but clearly, utilities and everybody, the pressure that they're going to be spending their money for new projects, primarily on wind and mm. solar, because that's regular. The regular regulations are yeah. driving that. There, there was a story, Dan, in Calif- out of California. It's a proposal, by the way. It's, it's not any all of our viewers, listeners, California don't need to freak out just yet. But if passed, this proposal would force power companies to charge customers a fixed rate based on their income. It's an addition right. to their power use, obviously designed to be equitable. So high-income households would end up paying more for power, even if they reduced their consumption. Now, to me, the first issue is why would a utility company should have any access to what I make in salary is ridiculous. Some of the most private and personal information you've got, that's my own take. That said, your take on the proposal itself. I I think this ties into what you just said about the insurance companies in California. By the way, this month, California is also going to start regulating the margins that the refining companies, basically California is going back uh, till the 1970s in terms of systems of price control and not letting markets work. And all three of these are examples of that. And clearly the notion that your utility is gonna know your income, I don't, I don't think that's gonna fly, but it shows the whole trend is the state of California doesn't really believe in, in markets and it wants to manage economies. But what you're going to do, once you do that, is create new distortions and you create new price problems, which they didn't need to do yeah. more regulations to solve. Yeah. If I want to buy a house or a car and I want to willingly give up my income information to the bank to get a loan, that's on me. But I certainly don't want a, a private corporation to know my income, which I just unbelievable. That's that's a separate issue. Dan Jurgen, wide ranging. Great discussion, as always, my friend. Have a good Thank weekend. You. See you soon. You By too. the way, we'll be covering that OPEC meeting remotely on Sunday. Yay. From here. Big changes, of course. Anything that happens, we're going to be hitting that all early Monday morning. All right, still ahead. Is Amazon about to Amazon, the cell phone business? Story you got to hear next. Friday, Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes is coming to IMAX and theaters everywhere. This summer, one movie event will reign. It is our time. They stole my village. I know where they're taking your clan. Bend for your king. Never. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Only in theaters Friday. Tickets on sale now. Rated PG-13. Some material may be inappropriate for children under 13. All right, welcome back to Last Call. Hope you're having a good Friday. The stock market certainly did, and definitely maybe a sully side up today and this week because it was a great day for many investors. Strong gains across the board. The Dow up 2%, over 700 points. The S&P up 1.8%, and the NASDAQ rising a percent for its sixth straight weekly gain. That's the longest run since just before COVID hit. Inside the market, let's look at the studs and the duds for the week. Dating app owner Match Group is the stud up more than 14%. The CEO bought some stock and is launching a new app. As for the dud, that was advanced auto parts going backwards, losing nearly 40% of its value after a dismal earnings report and a guidance cup. Dating up, used car parts down. All right, now to the story that we just teased. If you are an Amazon Prime member, which let's be honest, most of you listening or watching to CNBC probably are, you may want to listen to this. Amazon is reportedly looking to add wireless services for Prime members at a low cost or potentially have it even be included in your Prime membership cost, kind of free-ish. So basically free outside of what you're paying for Prime. The discussion's taking place with Dish Network, Verizon, and T-Mobile. But maybe keep down the excitement. Amazon and the wireless companies are tossing some water on that report, which came out of Bloomberg, but apparently investors aren't convinced about the denials. 
Let's now bring in Tom Rogers, the first president of NBC Cable, the founder of this fine network, former TiVo CEO and currently editor-at-large at Newsweek. Uh, Tom, Amazon pretty much does everything it tries to do pretty well, except I remember when they had this thing called the Fire Phone. At least I think I remember because it lasted about a hot minute. What do you make of this report? Well, it sounds great, doesn't it? I mean, free mobile service. I'm surprised the the president didn't uh, endorse that in his little talk just now. Uh, Look, uh, I think that uh, as Moffat Nathanson, which put out a good note on this uh, today, indicated, it's uh, unlikely. um, And uh, if it does happen, it's not going to happen quickly. And the reason for that is uh, the cellular mobile business has gotten to be a very tough business for AT&T and Verizon and T-Mobile. And the way that Amazon would be let in is for them to essentially rent them their mobile facilities uh, and on a wholesale basis that would then allow Amazon to underprice them. And uh, that would be the uh, Fox being let into the hen house type of scenario that um, is probably unlikely. In fact, Verizon did that with the cable industry and let the cable industry in to use their facilities under a perpetual agreement. And now uh, the cable industry is taking a huge amount of that mobile phone growth away from the telco company. So doing yeah. that again would be an unlikely scenario. You might have heard about this company called Comcast. And if you are a Comcast cable subscriber, which I highly recommend, by the way, Tom, you can go in, of course, and get their Xfinity. I'm not doing a commercial for my parent company. I just know because I'm a user as well as an employee, by the way, of our parent company, Comcast. Is that kind of going to be then the model? I don't like to use the term bundle because it sounds old-ish. But what will be that model going forward? Because people have got to figure out how to make some money somewhere. Well, it, it, the, the bundle model is the model now for cable, the video business having declined, but broadband with mobile phone service is something cable is having a lot of success with. The one player out there that was way up today in, in its stock price is Dish. And Dish has also suffered really badly in the media business. Uh, the amount of cord cutting that has gone on on the satellite front has exceeded even the high degree of cord cutting that Comcast and the other cable operators have suffered. Um, and to deal with that, it has tried to transform itself, uh, buying a lot of spectrum, uh, doing uh, some arrangements with existing telcos to build out its own uh, mobile network. Uh, now, there, Amazon and AWS, I'm sorry, AWS and Dish already have some kind of deal. So there's a lot of speculation that this could turn into something. Uh, the downside of that scenario is that. Uh, Dish has never operated a mobile phone network, and uh, for Amazon to go into such a consumer-facing vital business that people rely on second-to-second with a a new rookie that so far has probably only built out 70% of the country uh, doesn't seem very likely now. Maybe that develops down the road, uh, but unlikely to happen quickly. Yeah, I did a one-on-one with Charlie Ergen of Dish Network about two years ago, I think it was, in in Aspen. He was very optimistic about it. We'll see if it Works out because dishes, as you know, has uh, had a lot of a lot of issues lately. Tom Rogers, thank you. Have a great weekend. You too, Brian. Thanks right, for thank having you. me. Are right, you welcome? Still ahead, a reported multi-billion-dollar settlement over the so-called Forever Chemicals at 3M. Stock on the move will tell you the story that you may not get anywhere else. All right, welcome back and good Friday evening here or good afternoon out west. Let's talk about Minnesota-based industrial giant 3M. It has been embroiled in lawsuits over so-called forever chemicals, claiming these chemicals hurt people and the environment. But the stock surged today over a report that 3M might be on the verge of striking a massive settlement worth at least $10 billion. This news came after just a few hours after other major chemical companies like Camors, DuPont, Corteva, made headlines for reaching an agreement of more than $1 billion. Seema Modi joining us now. She's been all over the story for a while and has more. Seema. 
Ryan, the settlements, the potential settlements, are in response to claims that these companies contaminated public water sources with harmful chemicals. The news comes as a growing number of states recently filing suit, including Maine. We recently visited a high school there where students cannot drink the water. Just outside of Bangor, Maine, is Herman High School. The water here, undrinkable. The fountains taped shut. We're very concerned. The school's water recently tested above the state's safety limit for PFAS, often referred to as forever chemicals. We're not fully understanding why it, it is in our water and it's it is at the level that we're at. For now, bottles of water are stacked at every fountain. Nearly 30 miles away in the rural town of Unity, the once thriving farm of Adam Nordell and his wife Joanna. But that all changed two years ago when they learned their soil was toxic. Our land is severely contaminated with forever chemicals. As soon as we learned, we shut down. Aaron Fry is Maine's attorney general. There are farmers who had to euthanize their livestock because of the chemical contamination. Fry recently filed litigation against several chemical manufacturers, including 3M and DuPont. We're alleging that 3M and DuPont created these chemicals had the science that showed just how dangerous they were, how toxic they were, how they were going to last forever. It is my responsibility to do whatever I can to hold accountable those companies that profited off of this chemical. What are the health risks associated with PFAS chemicals? We've seen correlations with thyroid disease, certain kinds of cancer, um, kidney disease, liver dysfunction. They're called forever chemicals because they stay in your body. Several manufacturers have announced their plans to reduce or discontinue the production of PFAS in the coming years. A 3M spokesperson said in a statement to CNBC, as the science and technology of PFAS, societal and regulatory expectations, and our expectations of ourselves have evolved, so has how we manage PFAS, adding the company plans to end production of the chemicals by 2025. The company also expressed a commitment in remediating PFAS, investing in water treatment, and collaborating with communities. DuPont, on the other hand, said it has never manufactured the harmful chemicals and believes the legal complaints are without merit. Since 2015, DuPont has gone through spin-offs and a merger. Those companies also named as defendants in Maine's lawsuit. Comores tells CNBC the company pledged in 2018 to reduce PFAS emissions at its manufacturing sites by at least 99 percent by 2030. Dow denied manufacturing PFAS and stated that it is not alleged to have caused any environmental contamination. A Corteva spokesperson told CNBC it does not comment on ongoing legal matters. On Wall Street, one analyst thinks 3M specifically is facing great financial risk. At this stage, given valuation and what we know about the PFAS litigation, we do consider 3M to be uninvestable. According to RBC Capital, it could mean a massive liability of 20 to $25 billion. I expect PFAS to be a front page news item uh, for the next couple of years. The EPA says an estimated 64 million people are affected by contaminated drinking water. The agency now expected to designate PFAS a hazardous chemical, possibly by the end of this year, which experts say could open the door to more lawsuits. And Brian, that's not all. We're still waiting a decision on the 3M's military earplugs, where legal costs could amount to up to $10 billion. 3M says that estimate is completely speculative. Mm. Well, Seema, what comes next? Well, 3M is expected to head to trial on Monday, Brian. It's the first of over 3,500 lawsuits. The outcome of that trial could potentially set the tone for future litigation and lawsuits. Over 15 to 16 states, Brian, launching lawsuits against this company and others. Simo Modi on an important story. Simo, thank you very much. All right, meantime, a quick update to our story from last night. Taking a deeper look at company C3AI, we highlighted an investor lawsuit and a series of short seller reports against the enterprise AI software provider. Company is responding. CNBC's reporting on Twitter. And of course, we're going to be fair. We're going to read it and say in part, quote, the statements, purported allegations and insinuations made by CNBC misrepresent C3AI and its fundamental business practices. Let the business results speak for themselves. C3 AI is steadfast in its mission to establish a market-leading position in enterprise AI globally. 
Now, here at CNBC, we stand by our report, but in the interest of fairness, wanted to make sure that you heard C3 AI's reaction to it as well. Draw your own conclusions. All right, coming up, the iMac, the iPod, the iPhone, the iPad. Just don't call it the iHeadset. The Apple story next. All right, happy Friday. Your exclusive insider buying segment is back. It's where we highlight the top five stocks being bought the most by their C-suite level execs with their own money. These are not stock buybacks, but executives spending their own money on their own stock. And as always, the info comes with our thanks to Verity Data. And as always, counting you down five to one. So let's go. Stock five, Driven Brands. The CEO buying just under a million bucks worth. First ever buy at the company. Who is this company? Well, they own brands like Meineke and Mako. Number four, Medtech company Massimo. They make health apps and a smartwatch. An exactly $1 million buy by the CEO and founder, Joe Connie. He actually bought $6 million worth the fourth quarter of last year. Stock's up since then, so he's coming in at a higher price. Third most insider buying, Align Tech, a board member, buying just under $2 bucks worth of the Braces company. Stock's down nearly 10% this quarter. Now to the top two. And yeah, we got a coal company, coal, on the board. A board member of CNX Resources buying $2.1 million worth. It's not only his first buy in a few years, but the first insider buy by anyone at the coal company since the end of 2020. Who says coal is dead? Apparently not that board member. But the most insider buy of the week, reinsurance company Renaissance Re. With a $2.49 million share pickup by the CEO. Only his second insider buy ever. That stock up 26% in the past year. So this insider is buying on strength, names to watch. There you go. Driven Brands, Massimo, Align Tech, CNX, and Renaissance. We, we, a reminder, we bring you every week, except during earnings season, when there are quiet periods, segment you will only see here on Last Call and on CBC Pro. So sign up today. All right, now let's talk Apple. It is gearing up for its big annual conference. And there is one potential announcement that is everybody talking. No, not a new phone or MacBook. Apple is expected to reveal its first alternate reality headset. And it costs a rumored 3000 bucks. Joining us now on the Big Stakes debut, Wedbush Securities Managing Director Dan Ives and big technology founder and CNBC contributor Alex Kantrowitz. Both thank you. Alex, for $3,000, what am I getting? And don't tell me it's Google Glass Redux. Well, you're really getting a chance to help build Apple's future because that's what this is. This device is going to be geared towards developers and enthusiasts that somewhere down the line will help construct the product that might end up hitting mass market. Now, this is not this headset that Apple set out to build. Apple wanted standalone lightweight glasses that you could put on without a battery pack. This is like ski goggle size headset with a battery pack. Who's going to wear that? Developers, tech enthusiasts, people who want to push the status quo forward and help Apple get to where it's going to be in the future, but we're not in the future now. This is almost a pre-release device that Apple is, for some reason, putting out to the public, maybe developing it for seven years, kind of forced the company's hand. Dan, will it move the needle on the stock, or is this going to be kind of just like a buzzy, cool, but niche product? No, I think it moves the needle because it's about the golden install base of Cupertino. That's This is a flex the muscles moment for Cook. You know, what we see on AR, VR, and I believe, as Alex talked about, the developer community, that's the lifeblood of Apple. And when we talk about AI, this is just more and more breadcrumbs to a broader AI strategy that they're rolling out. And right now, despite the macro, Apple's in a massive position of strength here. I think Monday's just another step forward. Yeah. Uh, Alex, can you get, and I asked this last night of Steve Kovac and Julia Borston, do you have any idea, like, I know they're super secretive, so you probably haven't seen it or played with it, but can you give our audience, like, a real-world application that would give value for the money of spending $3,000? Like, what, what, would, what would be a worthwhile spend for that kind of coin? Yeah, look, I think you're going to spend that money just because you love Apple and you really buy the vision. And Apple is going to sell that vision in a big way. On Monday, you know, throwing things out at the audience like 4K resolution in each eye and 5,000 nits of brightness. We'll probably hear about real world fidelity. 
You know, you might really want to buy the device if you're a hardcore gamer, for instance. And you know what? I wouldn't be surprised if like people who are entertainment aholics are also catered to at this event. So, for instance, you know, I don't know, I don't have inside information, but if Bob Iger walks out there and talks about how you can watch Disney movies and Disney Plus on this in an incredible experience, you know, whether you're at home or on the train or in a plane, I think that might appeal to a certain segment of the population also. So gaming, um, computing, entertainment, maybe productivity, that's where I would think we're gonna land. But the on Facebook Monday. headset, Dan, is like 500 bucks. This is 3,000. I'm probably conflating the two and what they're able to do, right? Like they're totally different animals or no? To- totally, and look, Facebook ultimately there, I mean, they really struck out terms of the success but apple i mean part of why they are where they are they're tacticians in terms of building out the strategy on hardware and i think this is just a further sort of tap into the install base on services you got gaming you got streaming tv you got you know what i believe music and others and i believe this is just going to be another step in the evolution of apple and i think definitely this is a get out the popcorn moment Dan and Alex, do really appreciate it as always, guys. I know it's late on a Friday, so thank you. Have a great weekend. Be well. All right, everybody. Do you know what happened 88 years ago today? One of the greatest baseball players in the history of baseball retired. His name was Babe Ruth. His prolific home run record shattered records and wowed fans across America during his 22-year career. Ruth lifted seven World Series titles. They called him the Bambino because of his baby face. And he walked away for the game as the all-time leader in home runs with 714, a record that stood for nearly 40 years. Babe Ruth, also one of the highest paid athletes of his time, but it's all relative. In 1930, he became the first baseball player to earn an annual salary of $80,000. In today's money, that would be around 1.5 million bucks. And that's a little higher than what the average baseball player earns today, but just a touch less than what the highest paid players, Max Scherzer and Justin Verlander, are making $43.3 million. Babe Ruth, at the peak of his career, made $1.5 million. Yeah. All right, folks, thanks for watching. We'll see you on Monday. American Greed is next. If a friend asks how you're doing and you say, I'm okay. When the truth is, I don't want my problems to burden anyone. Or you say, hang it in there. Because if I ask for help, they'll just think I'm weak. Then this is your sign to call, text, or chat. 988 for free confidential support. Anytime. You don't have to hide how you feel.